thanks for, so much for being with us today, whether you're right here in the room with us, if you're watching online, Diane, Sue, I, I see you guys in the chat stream there, but uh, we are grateful to have you with us. We are uh, readily in the midst of a series that we've been doing on relationships that we've entitled First Comes Love. And uh, in this series, we've been uh, looking at our relationships, specifically our romantic relationships, and how that nursery rhyme that we grew up with, that kind of goes first comes love, then comes marriage. A lot of fun as kids, but it really didn't serve us well as adults as to how relationships work. And so each week we've taken uh, just kind of a different factor in relationships. We looked at uh, dating and um, falling in love, and we've been looking at marriage last week and again this week, and then next week we're going to be looking at family. So in week one we talked about this idea that with dating it's not about finding the right person, it's about becoming the right person. And then the next week we looked at this idea of love, and from a biblical perspective how love is a multifaceted, you know, it's just a complex concept. And when we you know, eliminate one facet or, or we go with one at the, you know, the expense of the others, love doesn't work the way we want it to. And then last week we looked at one of the most significant hurdles that couples run into in marriage, that being unmet expectations. And this week we're going to kind of camp again on, on marriage and look at another significant hurdle for marriage. And then next week, Pastor Kevin Butcher is going to be with us. Yeah. It's gonna, if you don't know who, you're like, who's Kevin? Come. Come. He's one of the best preachers I know. And uh, he's going to talk to us about family. So uh, it's just been, it, these areas of our lives can be complicated and they can be difficult. And for so many people, there's a lot of heartache and pain involved in these things. And so each week, we're just turning to God and seeing what kind of wisdom and truth he has for us in the Bible for every one of these areas of our lives. And hopefully we're seeing that when we take God's truth and we consistently apply it to our lives, over time it brings health and healing and hope where we were knowing otherwise. So we're going to try and do that again today. But before we do, we're going to take a minute and pray. So I want to invite you just to, to pray with me as we invite God to be part of this with us. Father, just today is um, so much of the news is dominated um, by what's taking place in Memphis. Uh, Father, we want to just ask that you would um, you'd meet the Nichols family and that you would help them in the grief and the pain and the loss that they are experiencing. Father, we pray for just the community there in Memphis that you would, um, that you would help them just for our leaders as they try and navigate this and as they think about um, what needs to be done in future and um, God, just for people being intelligent and taking the time to really understand the situation fully before they respond, we pray for your hand in the midst of all this and for our country and for healing and for change. Father, I pray that you would help us today as we take time and try and explore your truth, that you would open our minds and our hearts to it. I pray for our relationships, for the relationships in this room today, the ones that are watching online, where there is struggle and there is disappointment and frustration, that your truth would help us find a way to healing and to life and to hope. 
We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Again, this morning we're going to look at one of the significant hurdles that couples face in marriage, and this is one that uh, I would argue every single couple faces when they get married, and it's this right here, conflict. Who's got the conflict-free marriage? Show of hands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Who has troubles with telling the truth at church? That's right. All right. So um, this, here's the deal. Any relationship that you have that's serious, this is going to be a factor sooner or later. And so if you're married, conflict's just part of the deal. If, if you and your spouse don't always get along, you don't need to panic. That doesn't mean that you're a bad person or they're a bad person. It just means that you guys are human. Anytime you take two human beings, you sentence them to life together, all right, this is going to come up sooner or later. All right, conflict's just a reality. It's the way it works. In fact, I had this wonderful rope at home that I was going to use as an illustration. And then you know what I did? I left it at home, all right? And I got all panicked. I'm like, what am I going to do with my rope illustration? And I found this in the back of the room. And I think they use this for ushering, like, you know, like rope-off seats. It's going to work anyway. Um, Conflict's like the rope, right? It's, it's not the presence of the rope in your relationship that you need to be worried about. It's what you do with the rope. It's how we manage conflict. It's, it's here, all right? And either we're going to do something constructive with it or something destructive with it. We're all going to tie one kind of knot or another with the rope in our marriage. And, and the knot that we tie is going to make all the difference in the world. And so sometimes when it comes to marriage and it comes to conflict, conflict is there. And, and some of us, we respond by fighting dirty. Who's got a spouse that fights dirty? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> I'm just setting you up, all right? All right? But some of us, we fight dirty. And when we fight dirty, there's a particular knot that we tie with our rope when we do that. It's just, it's just how it works. And that, that, that knot is going to impact the relationship. You know, so when, when I fight dirty, and, and let me just clarify, all right, Pastor Laura is not my wife, Laura, all right? Anybody who's new here, they're like, oh, that's so cute. The, 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 the lead pastor's married to the children's pastor. My wife's name is Laura, but that's not Pastor Laura. It's a different Laura, all right? So, but like when I fight dirty or when my wife fights dirty, God help me, um, we basically take the rope and we tie a noose. And we, we literally choke the life and the hope and the excitement right out of the relationship. And anybody who's been with somebody who fights dirty, like, you know what I'm talking about. You know what that does to the relationship. The good news, though, is it doesn't have to work that way. Again, it's, it's, not, the, it's not the rope being present. It's what we do with the rope. So we don't have to fight dirty. It, conflict doesn't have to be this destructive force in our lives and in our relationships. We can tie a different kind of note, rope, uh, knot with the rope. Now, th this knot is a climber's knot, and it's used by, yeah, not that complicated, right? Um, but what they do is they, they, you put this in the harness, and this knot provides safety and security. Keeps, keeps the climber from falling and busting a limb, or even worse, we can approach conflict in such a way where it is actually a constructive force in our marriage. Where it's actually going to breathe life and hope and healing into the relationship. It's, it's all about 
what are we doing with the rope? The presence isn't the problem, it's how we respond to it. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at a passage from the book of James, where James gives us some best practices for how to deal with the rope, what to do with the rope. He gives us some tools, if you would, for how to manage conflict in a healthy kind of way. And we're going to kind of use James as a, as a launching point, and then we're going to take each of James's best practices or each of James's tools, and we're going to we're going to expand a little bit deeper in what the book of Proverbs has to say about each of those things and hopefully walk away with some really practical tools, some really practical best practices to make sure that we're tying the right kind of rope or right kind of knot with the rope in our marriage. So James says this as he begins. He says, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. So James is like, listen, <laughs> Pay attention to what I'm about to say, because this is really important. And then James says next, he says, everyone. Now, do you know what that word means in the original language? Everyone, right? Again, it's not complicated. James is like, if you're watching online, Samil, I see you on there. He's like, I'm talking to you. He's like, if you're sitting in the room today, Kevin, this is for you. If, if you're married, this is for you. If you're single, this is for you. If you have a relationship, what I'm about to say is for you. James says, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Three very simple responses that James is trying to point us to. So we're just going to take them one at a time and walk through them. So James begins, he says, hey, everyone should be quick to listen. Now, one of the reasons James tells us we should be quick to listen is because so often in the midst of conflict, we're quick to do something different. So often in the midst of conflict, we, we are quick to think we've got all the answers. Like, what happened, and how it happened, and why it happened, and what it all means. And we come to those conclusions before we've taken the time to listen to the person that we're in conflict with. Now, here's the problem with that. There is a God, and you're not him, and I'm not him, and the person sitting next to you is not him. None of us are all-knowing, all-seeing, all-wise. And when we, when we come to conclusions, when we figure, when we're like, hey, I've got the answers, and we haven't taken the time to listen, we, we, we kind of step into a divine kind of role in the relationship. And it's never good for us. It's never good for the person we're in a relationship with. It's never good for the relationship itself. It's why Proverbs will warn us. It'll say to us, to answer before listening, that is folly and shame. When there's conflict with another person, and I get to this place where I'm like, I got all the answers. Again, I know what happened and how it happened and why it happened and what it all means. And I come to all these conclusions before I've taken the time to listen. Proverbs says that is folly and shame. Because when I do that, I'm going to think I got the answers right. But oftentimes when I come to conclusions without having listened first, I come to the wrong conclusions. I'm, I get things wrong. That's my folly. And oftentimes, it will drive me to respond to that situation. 
based on faulty conclusions, and then I do things that I regret or things that are just plain stupid. And that's my shame. And so James is like, hey, what we want to do is we want to be quick to listen because that's going to change things. Now, what does it look like to listen well? I recently heard an illustration of this that I found personally to be so helpful, so I'm going to share it with you. Uh, as, as some of you know, I like to backpack. My favorite store to buy gear at is REI. Like, I will, I will buy something at REI even though it's going to cost me more money to get it at REI instead of buying it somewhere else. And here's why. It is the customer service experience that I receive at REI. Right? I, will, I will shop there even though I can get the gear cheaper somewhere else. And, and, and here's, the, here's the, like their, their shtick. They're like, hey, we have a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Anything you buy, we guarantee 100% you're going to like it. If you don't, you can bring it back within a year. We'll give you a full refund even if you use the gear. Now, I remember them saying this the first time I was shopping in REI, and I was like, mm, I don't know if I believe that. And I was skeptical because of the customer service experience I had had at other stores. Stores where, like, if you want to take something back, if, if you don't have the exact receipt that you purchased the item with, they're not going to take it back. If the tags are, are not still affixed to the item, they're not going to take it back, right? If, if you do take it back, they try and give you the sale price instead of the price you actually paid. Or they try and give you store credit instead of cash back. Or they, like, they interrogate you like you're some kind of criminal for trying to bring this thing back, right? And I won't mention the names of the stores that are like this, but they, we've all had stores like that. I can't stand stores like that. I want anything to do with stores like that because they've communicated through their customer service experience, they've communicated to me a very clear message about the nature of our relationship. They don't care about me. They don't want to understand how I feel about what I purchased. And they are going to leverage the relationship to their advantage at my expense. So REI has this, you know, they're like, hey, this is how we do this. And I thought, ah, I don't know, whatever, but I want the boots, so I bought the boots. I did not like the boots. The boots irritated my ankles. I knew these, th these boots are going to give me blisters like crazy. That's not helping when you're walking 8, 10, 12 miles a day for five days straight. So I bring the, with great trepidation, I bring the boots back in. I set them on the counter. I said, I'd like to return these boots. And they said, okay, no problem. And I said, <laughs> and they said, was there anything wrong with them? Were they defective or, defective or did you just not like them? I said, well, they, the way they fit my ankles have really irritated my feet, and I think they're going to give me blisters. And they said, okay, can we just credit the card you used to purchase the boots? I said, yeah, that'd be fine. And they said, beep, 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 beep. Okay, your card's been credited. Thanks so much. I'm going to shop at REI whenever I can, and even if i got to pay a little bit more, I'm going to shop there. Because their customer service experience communicated another message to me about the relationship. It was, hey, we care about you. We want to understand how you feel about our product, and we're going to make sure the relationship is fair and equitable. Here's what I come to understand. And th this is absolutely true for me and my marriage. Maybe it's true for you and yours. But I've come to realize 
My marriage has a customer service desk. My marriage has a customer service desk. And when my wife comes to me, when Laura comes to me, she's like, hey, I got this issue. How I respond is going to communicate something to her about the nature of the relationship. When I am quick to listen, I provide her with the customer service experience that I want myself. When, when, when I take the time to shut my mouth and open my ears, when, when I focus my attention and my energy on really hearing what she is saying instead of forming my rebuttal to it while she's saying it, when I genuinely want to understand her and her perspective and how she's feeling, whether I agree with it or not, I'm listening well. I'm providing her with the kind of customer service experience that makes her want to keep shopping here. My marriage has a customer service desk. So James says to me, hey, be quick to listen. Be quick to listen. And then he says to me, be slow to speak. Be slow to speak. Now, tells me to be slow to speak because in my brokenness, maybe in your brokenness, in your spouse's brokenness for sure, right? We're quick to speak. We're quick to say things even before we've thought them through. Even before we've really considered well, like what kind of impact is what I'm going to say right now going to have on this person and on this relationship? It's why the Proverbs will warn us. They'll say, the heart of the righteous weighs its answers, but the mouth of the wicked gushes evil. The heart of the righteous weighs its answers. Everybody say, weigh. If you're watching on the live stream, right in the chat feed, chat in there, weigh. See, here's the deal. Wise people weigh it before they say it. Wise people, people with healthy relationships, people with growing, life-giving connections with other human beings, they take the time, especially in the midst of conflict, to weigh it before they say it. They're, they're going to think about it. They're going to consider it. They're going to meditate on it. They're going to crockpot on it. They're going to weigh it before they say it. Wise people in their relationships, especially in the midst of conflict, they ask and answer three critical questions before they speak. Simple questions. They ask, should I say it at all? Just because a thought rattles around between my ears doesn't mean it's a good idea to give it a fast pass to my mouth. Just because I can think it doesn't mean I should speak it. Some of the things that run across the screen in our mind should never be said. Wise people weigh it. They ask, should I say it? Next they ask, when should I say it? Just because it should be said doesn't mean it should be said here, doesn't mean it should be said now. There, if I've got something difficult to say to my wife, it's almost never a good idea 
for me to say it in a public setting. If I've got something difficult to say to my wife, it is really wise not to say it in a high-stress time. There are just better times and places to say it. And then wise people will ask, how should I say it? Just because it's true and it needs to be said doesn't mean I need to be a jack wagon about the way that I say it. I'm called to speak the truth, but as a follower of Jesus, I'm called to speak the truth in? Yeah, in love. I can, I can say it, but I don't need to be like, hey, let me give you both barrels of truth. Just Should I say it? When should I say it? How should I say it? Wise people weigh it before they say it. Not only so, but we should be slow to speak because of how powerful our words are. All the time people say, well, it's just words. No. Words are powerful. Again, the proverb warns us of this. It says, the words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. See, when we're quick to speak, when we, when we fail to weigh it before we say it, our words are powerful. They have the ability to literally decapitate another person emotionally or spiritually. There was a younger couple that I knew, and um, they were arguing about intimacy, which if you're a young married couple and you're arguing about that, again, don't panic. That doesn't mean you're bad, your spouse is bad. It means you're human. Young couples argue about that all the time. This young couple's arguing about that, and as they're having an argument about it one particular day, the wife looked at the husband, and she said to him about intimacy in their relationship, she said, I wish this had never been part of our relationship. Just words, right? Devastated him. Absolutely devastated him. Might as well, might as well just picked up a sword and run the man through. Our words are powerful. And when we fail to take the time to really think about what we are saying and how is this going to impact this person and how is this going to impact the relationship and how is this going to impact the circumstances, we can do way more damage than we ever meant to. So, wise people are slow to speak. In fact, I encourage couples to have kind of like a list of things where you're like, okay, when, especially in the midst of conflict, we're just not going to do these things. So I'm going to share with you my list, and you, you can take my list, make it your own. You, it's something that my wife Laura and I agree to. You can be like, hey, I'm going to edit this, I'm going to add to this, whatever. But he, here's some suggestions for you. So here we go. Number one, no calling each other names. Unless those are like fun pet names like, you know, Snuggle Bear or Sugar Pants, right? But always those should be used in love, all right? So just no name calling. Number two, number two, no swearing at each other. You're like, we're at church. You shouldn't have to say that. I shouldn't. But I've been doing this long enough to know no swearing at each other, all right? The minute we do this, we are losing. So just don't go there. Number three. No yelling at each other. If, listen, if they don't get it, change your argument, reinforce your argument, figure out a different way to explain it. Raising your voice isn't going to help anything. Number four, 
No getting historical. Like, this is what you did on our six-month anniversary 20 years ago. Leave the past in the past, all right? Number five, no using words like never and always. You never, you always. When we go there, it's usually emotionally driven. It's usually void of accuracy. And, and rarely, if ever, is it helpful. Number six, no threats of divorce. The D word should be illegal in your home. This actively erodes the security your marriage covenant was meant to provide. In fact, really wise couples, when they're having an argument, One or both of them will look for an opportunity to just remind the other person, hey, I'm here. Like really wise couples will go, hey, listen, I know this is really tense right now. I know it feels like we don't even like each other right now. I just want you to know I still love you, and I'm not going anywhere. And then number seven, no quoting your pastor. (laughs) right? Do, do, do not be like, hey, well, Pastor Mike said, uh-uh, leave my name out of your mouth, all right? You got yourself into this mess, you get yourself out of this mess, all right? So the, the, just things that Laura and I are like, hey, this, we're not doing these things, all right? I, I'd encourage you to have a list. Be slow to speak. Think about what you're saying because your words are powerful. All right, back to James. So James says to us, Everyone should be slow to speak, quick to listen, and then slow to become angry. Be slow to become angry. And again, James tells us to be slow to become angry because in our brokenness, he knows how quick we can become angry in the midst of conflict, how easy it is to go there, and how destructive it can be when we do. Again, the Proverbs warn us about this. Proverbs will say to us, a fool gives full vent to their rage. A fool. Now, just in case you're not sure, this is not a complimentary term. All right? In Proverbs, the fool is a person who knows they are always right, even though everybody around them knows they are not. The fool is a person who's always making bad moral decisions. The fool is the person, they're like as sharp as a bag of polished marbles, right? The fool is the person in the book of Proverbs who's forever giving people around them desire to choke them out. Proverbs says, hey, it is the fool who gives full vent to their rage. Who says, this is what I'm thinking, so I'm just going to say it. This is how I feel, so I'm just going to do it. It's the fool who lets their anger control them rather than learning to control their anger. And the fact is, we all know this to be true. Just stop and think about the last time you were in conflict and you let your anger get the better of you. You just let it rip. How was it for the relationship? Sure, you might have won the argument, But how was it for the relationship? 
See, our rage, it'll get us what we want in the short run, but it'll keep us from what we want in the long run. The person who regularly gives full vent to their rage, their spouse doesn't respect them. They come to despise them. They don't trust them. They fear them. And they don't want to draw close to them. They're trying to push away from them. So, it's the fool who does this. Wise people figure something different out. They figure out how to control anger rather than let anger control them. So, before we wrap up, let me give you one last like, practical tool that my wife Laura and I try and employ to help with this. And I would say of all the things that we have done when it comes to like managing conflict well, this is the number one tool for us. And it's what we call the timeout. Right? And by timeout, this does not mean my wife is, you know, like will say to me, hey, you're out of control. You go sit down over there and you do not get up till I tell you otherwise. Right? Now what we have in mind. All right? By timeout, what that means is at any point, as we're, we're getting into it, if either one of us feels like, hey, I don't have the emotional capacity to continue in this conversation in a healthy way, or I'm not sure that my spouse has the emotional capacity to continue in this conversation in a healthy way, either one of us can call a timeout. And when we call a timeout, we, you don't have to say, it was me, it was you, all right? You don't have to declare that, and smart people probably don't, right? You just go, hey, I need to take a timeout. And when, we, when, we, when, we, when a timeout is called, we push pause. The conversation gets tabled. We both agree, we're gonna leave it alone. I'm not going to chase her down, try and make her talk about it. She's not going to chase me down, try and make me talk about it. It's paused. It's on the table. When a timeout is called, we both agree we're going to be civil, we're going to be polite, we're going to be friendly. And then whoever called the timeout, they are responsible to reinitiate the conversation within 24 to 48 hours of timeout having been called. Absolute game changer for our relationship, and I'll explain a little bit more why, but before I do, let me just deal with a couple of questions or objections that I've regularly had when I talk to folks about this. First one is this. People will say, well, isn't that just an avoidance technique? Suppose it could be. My wife and I just decided we're going to act like grown adults, and we're not going to use it that way. And listen, if you want to use it that way, it's only 24 to 48 hours. Like, if you're going to be manipulative and dysfunctional, find an avoidance technique that does a better job, okay? Right? So I don't think it's an avoidance technique. The other thing, though, that people will oftentimes, they'll say, well, I thought the Bible said, like, if you're having a fight with your spouse, you, have to, like, you can't go to bed until you guys have resolved that. No, that's not what the Bible says. Here's the passage that folks are referring to. Paul wrote this. He said, in your anger... Do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Now, Paul is not saying here, hey, you're in conflict with somebody else, the two of you, you just have to keep on until you can't go to bed, until you get this thing resolved. He's saying, no, anger is a problem. It can lead you to sin. You want to avoid that. Don't go to bed while you're still angry. Do not go to bed 
festering in this thing, stewing in this thing, just letting it just rot your soul, you need to make addressing this emotion a priority. You need to get after this. I would contend that when my wife and I push pause, we call a timeout. The whole goal of that is to take a step back and to calm down. To take a step back and, and to ask ourselves, okay, what's going on inside of me emotionally? Is this really appropriate based on the perceived defense? To take a step back and go, hey, could I be wrong here? Hey, how do I want to respond moving forward? The, the whole thing, it's not an avoidance technique, it's a calm down technique. We're actually trying to address the emotion of anger in a healthy kind of way. So we don't go to bed angry, we go to bed calming down. Not only so, but you read this in the book of Psalms. The psalmist will say, don't sin by letting anger control you. Think about it overnight and remain silent. In other words, sometimes the best thing I can do is shut up and consider what's going on inside of me and what's going on around me. Sometimes the best thing I can do is take some time to de-escalate so that I can come back to the table and deal with this in a constructive kind of way. For my wife and I, it was a game changer. Early on in our marriage, we'd get into conflict and we're like, okay, let's go. And we'd just stick with it, stick with it, stick with it. And we'd reached a point where neither one of us had the emotional capacity to continue in the conversation and do so in a healthy way, and we just continue anyway, because we're not going to go to bed angry, right? You know? And then we would, one or both of us, would say or do something that we regretted deeply, that wounded the other person deeply. When we figured out, hey, we're going to push pause, we're going to take a step back. We're going to calm down. We're going to think this thing through. And then we're going to re-engage. Overwhelming majority of the time, we would re-engage. And it took like five, ten minutes to get the whole thing figured out. Because we came back with some sense. Timeout was huge for us. So, James says to us, in the midst of conflict, be quick to listen. Your marriage has a customer service desk. Try and provide your spouse with the kind of listening experience you would want yourself. He says, be slow to get angry. Be, be slow to speak. Think about it. Weigh it before you say it. Because your words are powerful. And then do what you need to do to get control of anger rather than letting anger get control of you. Because that unchecked anger, it's not going to be good for you, it's not going to be good for your spouse, it's not going to be good for the relationship. Now, if you're looking for some more tools, there's a book that I would recommend. It's in your digital bulletin. It's called A Lasting Promise. It's an older book. My wife and I read this book. It was huge for us in our marriage. Provide us with some of the tools that we've talked today and a whole pile of additional ones. Again, fascinating research in this book. 
It's not the presence of conflict that you need to be worried about. It's how you manage it. One of the studies they pointed to in this book is the researchers were able to determine with an 80% degree of accuracy which couples were going to make it long-term and which ones weren't based solely on how they manage conflict. Gang, it's important, but it's something that we can do well. We can actually turn it into a constructive force. It's all about how we do it. Would you stand with me, please? Let's pray together. Father, I just, uh, again, we want to pray for the relationships that are represented in this room today, for the folks who are watching online today. Father, help us, please, in our marriages and in our other important relationships, to be the kind of people who slow down and genuinely listen. Not to come into things thinking we got it all figured out. Father, help us to be the kind of people who think about what we're saying before we let it come out of our mouths. Who think about how it's going to impact the person that we say we care about. Father, help us to be the kind of people who control our emotions rather than letting our emotions control us. Father, we pray for your hand to healing on the relationships that are represented today and just for great progress moving forward in how we manage conflict. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.